Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Renewing the Faith, the Sokoto Caliphate. The idea that political power should be joined to philosophical wisdom goes back at least as far as Plato's Republic, with its bold theory that the ideal city should be ruled by philosophers. Or rather, it surely goes back quite a bit further than that. Earlier in the Greek tradition, we know that the pre-Socratic thinker Anaxagoras was associated with the Athenian statesman Pericles, and in this very series, we have examined expressions of the importance of learning to the kings of Egypt, epitomized not only by the instruction addressed to King Merikade, and its teaching that the good ruler is one who learns how to uphold the value of mat, but also by the depiction of the strong interest the king takes in the surprising level of insight into mat, shown by Hananup in the tale of the eloquent peasant. By contrast, we don't really expect today's leaders to be scholars or to spend time seeking them out. Deep learning is rarely made a basis for political authority nowadays, and indeed, some modern voters might even be leery of a candidate who spends all their free time with books, preferring the effective manager or businessman to the intellectual. But, while the ideal of the scholar-king is certainly an antique one, it is not so antiquated as you might think. In the third part of this series, we'll look at a number of thinkers, scholars, and political philosophers who formed the first generation of leaders of independent nations in Africa. And for another striking example, we can look back just a couple of centuries to events that unfolded in what is now northern Nigeria in the first years of the 19th century. The central character of this story is a charismatic preacher named Uthman Dan Fodio, often known as the Shehu, a version of the Arabic title Sheikh. Born in 1754, the young Uthman joined his brothers in travels around Hausaland, that is, the area inhabited by the Hausa people. He was seeking instruction in religion as well as Sufism and other disciplines like astronomy. Particularly influential on him was a teacher named Jibril ibn Umar, who decried the hypocrisy of the nominally Muslim rulers who governed the region and the fact that many people still pursued traditional African religion. In 1774, the Shehu launched his own missionary work, preaching in favor of Islamic piety and against the traditional practices that he considered to be nothing more than crude paganism. Ultimately, Uthman decided that preaching was not enough. He gathered his followers into an army and launched a military struggle, or jihad, against the Hausa rulers. He served as the spiritual leader of this endeavor, while military command was taken by his brother Abdullah and his son Muhammad Bello. The Shehu's forces found themselves victorious in 1812, establishing what has come to be known as the Sokoto Caliphate, after the city of Sokoto, which was founded as the capital of this new state. It sounds like a simple story of religious zeal, and certainly Uthman Danfodio's leadership was bound up with a reputation for piety and mystical insight, even magical abilities. But the first family of the Sokoto Caliphate were also scholars and poets. The Shehu, his son Bello, and his daughter Nana Asma'u were renowned for their learning and composed works in prose and in verse. They wrote either in Arabic or in the local languages of Hausa or Fulani, but using Arabic script. This type of text is called Ajami, non-Arabic. The family's bookishness was central to their political ideology and their own claims to legitimacy. Again and again, their writings emphasized the importance of gaining understanding, 
a value epitomized in a saying of the prophet quoted by Bello, the most excellent worship is the search for knowledge. Bello himself certainly took this to heart. His sister Asma'u credits him with having read more than 20,000 books. This sounds like hyperbole, and we are apt to wonder how he could have gotten his hands on so many texts, never mind found time to read them. But as we saw last time, even today, there are thousands of surviving manuscripts in West Africa, and even more would have existed around 1800. The leaders of the caliphate encouraged the same attitude among their subordinates. Numerous works by Uthman and Bello are addressed to regional governors within their state, and they unfailingly implore these leaders to pay heed to the learned men of the scholarly class, the ulama. According to Asma'u, her father, the Shehu, laid down four duties of the caliph, to summon scholars, enjoin truth, uphold tradition, and make justice prevail. You might be surprised that Asma'u herself was so well-educated, being a member of a family that waged Islamic holy war, not something people typically associate with the emancipation of women. But the Sokoto Caliphate did not hold the ultra-conservative social and religious values espoused at the same period by Wahhabi Islam, even though the Shehu's teacher, Jibril, may have been influenced by that movement while visiting the Saudi Peninsula. In fact, the Shehu wrote about the importance of educating women, especially in a work called The Light of Hearts, and Bello followed his lead by writing about the virtues of pious women. From their own point of view, they were taking a moderate position on the role of women in society. Women should not have the same freedoms as men, and in particular, should not go out of the house without good reason, but the goal of seeking knowledge counted as a very good reason. The policy is summed up in an anecdote in which Asma'u hears her father apportioning official roles to various men and speaks up to ask, what about us, the women? In response, the Shehu appoints her to be the authority over all women in the caliphate, adding, the women of the caliphate belong to the women and the men belong to the men. Scholarship was then highly valued within this rigorously Islamic society. What though did that mean in practice? In the first instance, the learning displayed by the Shehu and other members of the Hausa or Fulani elite was in the area of the so-called religious sciences, which included Quranic exegesis, knowledge about the life and sayings of the Prophet, and most importantly for us, jurisprudence, Sufism, and rational theology. As we know from the series on philosophy in the Islamic world, quite a lot of philosophy was traditionally involved in these endeavors, and the Sokoto leaders were nothing if not traditional. In matters of law, they proclaimed their adherence to scholarly consensus, something else that distinguishes them from the more radical Wahhabis. Following consensus usually meant using tradition to determine rulings on specific legal questions. For instance, like Ahmed Baba, the Shehu held that slavery was licit in Islam, but that Muslims could not be enslaved. Bello would later specify that anyone under Muslim rulership was thereby ruled out as a potential slave. Similarly, Bello ruled that one can seize booty in war, but only from non-Muslims. But the jurisprudential tradition also involved more general ideas about justice and ethics. As we just saw, the Shehu identified the upholding of justice as a crucial task for the caliph, and that meant in part establishing a judiciary with upright and well-trained judges. Indeed, Bello quotes the 11th century political thinker Al-Mawardi for the idea that this is one of a ruler's seven primary duties. The ruler should also be ready to carry out the dictates of justice unflinchingly. Quoting another traditional source, Bello says that a governor must have strength such that the killing of a man in the cause of truth would be to him like the killing of a sparrow, and 
he should have such mildness, care, and mercy that he fears to kill a swallow without justice. Elsewhere, he argued that rulership without a basis in justice can never succeed. There is no rulership without the army, no army without wealth, no wealth without tax, no tax without prosperity, no prosperity without justice. Justice is therefore the base on which the foundation of the state is laid. Thus, it is not only individual virtue, but the encouragement of virtue in society at large that makes for a good ruler. The Shehu captured this in a description of the ideal ruler, who will, as he put it, strip evil things from religious and temporal affairs and introduce reforms, combat every cause of corruption that occurs in his country, and forbid every disapproved thing, and strive to reform the markets, set right the affairs of the poor and the needy, and order the doing of every approved thing. We should hasten to add, though, that the citizens of the caliphate were not being encouraged to overthrow leaders who failed to measure up to these lofty standards. To the contrary, the Shehu and his children regularly emphasized that good Muslims should accept their subordinate political position, alluding to a passage of the Quran that states, Obey those who have authority among you. Asma'u explicitly advised her readers to follow this policy even while under the rule of the wicked. A poem she wrote on the basis of verses by her father includes the lines, No matter how pious you are, nor how godly and saintly, nor how profoundly learned, all who refuse to follow the commands of the caliph will be without excuse hereafter. But our obligations to political authority are not unlimited. After all, the Shehu himself did not meekly accept the Hausa rulers, but rose up against them in rebellion. For him, they had no legitimacy, since their rule was not based upon Islam. Legitimate political authority, then, belongs to any ruler who sincerely rules in the name of Islam. Thus, any established ruler should be obeyed so long as he does not reject true religion. Yet, the ruler has a duty to look to the good of the community and apply principles of justice, paying heed to the scholars who will keep him on the straight and narrow. Hence, the production of numerous works of advice for rulers, so-called mirrors for princes. We saw last time that the earlier African scholar Al-Makili was an influential exponent of this genre, and he was a writer well known to Uthman Danfodio. As we saw, Al-Makili was also a key importer of Sufi thought into the region, and Sufism was a powerful influence on the thought of the Shehu and his family. They were inspired especially by the Qadariya Sufi order, named for its founder, Abd al-Qadir al-Jilani. Asma'u had particular admiration, too, for the early female ascetic and Sufi, Rabia, whom she praises for her exceeding piety and learning. Works of other notable Sufis that will be familiar to you from our podcasts on philosophy in the Islamic world, like Ibn Arabi and Al-Ghazali, were also known in Hausaland at this time. Indeed, Uthman Danfodio even wrote a work that he called Revival of the Traditions, evidently in tribute to the title of Al-Ghazali's masterwork, The Revival of the Religious Sciences. One key idea to come from these Sufi sources was asceticism, a turning away from worldly things and valuing of God alone. It comes out in a passage like the following, written by Nana Asma'u. Divorce the world which constantly changes, fear the world with its endless vacillations and do not take delight in it. We may detect an echo of Platonism in this advice, a rejection of the physical realm on the basis that it lacks stability or constancy. It would be foolish to place our trust and hopes with things in this transitory world when we could instead direct our attention to the unchanging realm of the divine. 
Accordingly, our authors evince a serene faith in divine providence, which often seems to tip over into what philosophers would call determinism. Ishehu could supposedly foretell future events, like the flourishing of a city that did not yet exist, and Asma'u reassures her readers that all things unfold according to God's plan. Rather than worrying about potentially problematic implications as regards human freedom, Asma'u is positively eager to outsource her volition to God. She prays, God prevail over my will. I cannot control my life by myself and can be guided only by Islamic law. Here, we might also make mention of the fact that Bello and Asma'u both wrote works in the genre known as prophetic medicine, which recommends what we would probably be tempted to call magical practices for curing or warding off illness, defeating enemies, and so on. This could include reciting parts of the Quran, or even writing it on a scrap of material like leather and keeping it upon one's person. But they would certainly have rejected the characterization of this as superstition or magic, something they themselves attack as a pernicious aspect of pagan society. Prophetic medicine is instead supposed to be a way of asking God to act in the world, something we see still more dramatically with the stories of miracles worked by the Shehu and his followers. Asma'u also got in on the act, reportedly setting an enemy town on fire by pointing a burning stick in its direction. For a more cerebral aspect of their appropriation of the religious sciences, we can turn to the influence of rational Islamic theology, or Kalam. As you know, the story of Kalam had been intertwined with the story of philosophy in the Islamic world from the very beginning. While pursuing an uneasy rivalry with the self-styled philosophers who took inspiration from Greek texts, Islamic theologians themselves devoted attention to central philosophical issues, such as proving the existence of God or the aforementioned question of human free will. A brief but remarkable example of how Kalam ideas were received in the Sokoto Caliphate comes in a treatise by Muhammad Bello called Infaq al-Maisur. Embedded within a history of the region and the jihad, Bello offers a paean to the wisdom and virtue of the Shehu, whom Bello honors with the traditional title, Renewer of Religion. He explains how the Shehu banished ignorance of religion from Hausaland and brought Sufism as well as sound learning in the Islamic sciences, writing that his father filled the countries of West Africa with knowledge and with seekers of knowledge. One of these sciences was theology, the study of God's oneness. Bello himself was credited with passionate devotion to this branch of learning in a praise poem written by Asma'u. Reading Bello's summary of the Shehu's own teachings on this subject, we are confronted with arguments and ideas that go right back to the classical period of Islam, about a millennium before the founding of the Sokoto Caliphate. According to Uthman Dan Fodio, we grasp God and his attributes, including his oneness, primarily through the fact that he created the universe. We know that the universe is in fact created because it consists entirely of things that came to be after they did not yet exist. So the world as a whole must likewise go from non-being to being, just like a body of water is wet because every part of it is wet. Here, the Shehu is using an argument for God's existence familiar from the earliest days of Islamic theology. Originally invented by the 9th century theologian Abul Udel, it has much more recently been influential in contemporary philosophy of religion, thanks to its revival by William Lane Craig. More recently, it had been used by other intellectuals of West Africa, such as Al-Wali. We saw last time that he encouraged, even demanded, the use of rational argument to provide religious faith with a solid intellectual basis. And it was the proof from creation that he put forward as just such an argument. 
With his own use of the argument, Othman Danfodio was therefore carrying on the rationalist project of Al-Wali, which was in turn inspired by the earlier Asanusi, who himself drew on still earlier theologians. Bello's presentation of the teachings of the Shehu goes on to infer a range of divine attributes from the conclusion of the proof from creation. As the cause of the things he creates, God is fundamentally unlike them, securing the truth of the Quranic dictum that no thing is like to God. Furthermore, God must be powerful as the cause of all things, and also knowledgeable, because he is able to give them their various characteristics. Furthermore, he must have free will, since he chose to create. Indeed, the Shehu emphasized God's untrammeled power for choice, stating that if God's deeds were in any way compelled, then that which is in itself merely possible or contingent would be rendered necessary. Thus, the hints towards determinism we found in other works of the Sokoto Caliphate would seem to apply only to human actions. God's freedom allows him to choose between genuinely open alternatives, and he chooses what will happen in our world. This would align the Shehu with the sort of teaching on divine and human action we find in older Sunni theology, as in the Asharite school. Given that the Shehu and his followers drew on intellectual traditions tracing right back to the classical period of Islam, one might be tempted to say that we have not really been exploring part of the history of Africana philosophy here, but rather providing a long overdue piece of the puzzle for philosophy in the Islamic world. In fact, though, we've clearly been doing both. The Sokoto Caliphate obviously belongs to African history. It created the conditions that confronted European powers when they extended the reach of colonialism into what is now Nigeria. The creation of a British protectorate in 1903 marked the demise of the state founded by Uthman Danfodio. And if we go back to the motive for the establishment of that state, we will recall that the jihad was a rejection of the traditional customs of Hausaland culture, which the Shehu and his fellow warriors and scholars deemed to be pagan. These included such things as celebratory drumming, since these strict Muslims rejected the use of drums in non-military contexts, which of course means they wouldn't approve of the musical introduction we've been using in these podcasts. Other practices they wanted to eliminate were dancing, prostration before kings and other people of honor, and sacrifices to natural things such as rivers, stones, and trees. The lesson to take from the story of the Shehu is not that Islamic thought in Africa was somehow not part of Africana philosophy, but that Africana thought has always been as diverse as Africa itself, and has included intellectual movements that were mutually antagonistic. Our next major topic in fact relates closely to the sort of traditional African society that was uprooted in the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate, because soon we'll start to look at the controversial question of philosophy and African oral culture. In this series so far, we've been dealing with unfamiliar philosophical traditions, but in a traditional way, insofar as we have focused on written texts from the writings of ancient Babylonia and Egypt to the treatises of men like Al-Wali and Muhammad Bello. But oral transmission has played a part. Remember how Al-Wali drew on an oral tradition of commentary to write his own exegesis of the religious creed of As-Sanusi. Indeed, this aspect of intellectual life in Islamic Africa continued past the time of the Sokoto Caliphate. The modern-day scholar Kai Kresse has devoted himself to what he calls anthropology of philosophy, doing fieldwork among Swahili speakers on the East African coast to learn about philosophical practices and teachings there. This may take written form, but also finds expression in the Baraza culture described by Kresse, in which informal gatherings, sometimes at a baraza or veranda in front of someone's home, 
involved discussion of everything from local gossip to politics, Quranic exegesis, and intellectual debates over morality or the reality of the spirit world. Poetry also continues to play an important role in Swahili intellectual culture, as it did in the Sokoto Caliphate, and of course poetry is a paradigm example of discourse that flourishes in oral settings. Thus, although the spread of Islam brought literacy to many regions of sub-Saharan Africa for the first time, it did not entirely supplant the orality of traditional African cultures. Those cultures will be coming into focus soon in this series, as we'll discuss the modern history of attempts to reconstruct the philosophical ideas transmitted in oral traditions, and also the criticisms that have been directed against that project. But before we get on to that, we want to do a bit more to acknowledge the diversity and complexity involved in the story of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa. For that purpose, we'll be speaking to an expert on this very subject, who will be providing us with his wisdom in oral and not written form. Please join us for an interview with Suleiman Bashir Djian, our guest for the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 